0: Welcome to Suspending the Rules, the Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. Hi there! It's Election Week here on Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government. I'm Adam Taylor.
1: And I'm Danielle Parnas. America will go to the polls Tuesday for the midterm elections. The outcome will have big implications for the policy agenda in Congress and for the Trump administration. Bloomberg government elections reporter Greg Giroux and deputy news director Lauren Duggan join us for the full episode today for a final update.
0: We'll look at the Senate in the second segment, but we start with the House of Representatives. Greg, we know the president's party tends to lose seats in the House during midterm elections, and for most forecasts, it looks like that will hold this year too, right?
2: Well, there's a wide range of possibilities, but yes, the opposition party uh, to the White House usually makes big gains in the midterm elections. The average result of a midterm election since World War II is that the White House's party loses an average of 26 seats. Democrats need a net gain of 23 seats, and there are a lot of indications that point to uh, them doing so, a lot of candidate recruitment, a lot of campaign fundraising, and they've put a lot of districts in play that they hadn't before. I'm looking at about 75 districts worth watching, about all of them are being defended by the Republicans. But there's still a wide range of possibilities. Republicans would need an awful lot to go their way to hold the majority. It'd be a very slim one. But Democrats are more likely than not to win the majority on Tuesday.
1: And so you're going to be on Bloomberg TV on election night following this very closely. What specifically are you going to be looking for to see whether Democrats can pick up enough seats to flip the House?
2: Well, because of our staggered time zones, we have basically a patchwork of fifty states voting at, and beginning and voting beginning and ending their voting at different times, and so it's gonna be very popular to look at some of the early poll closing states. And one of the top races in the country is in Kentucky's sixth district, where the polls close at six o'clock Eastern time. Their Republican congressman Andy Barr is in a very difficult re election against Democrat Amy McGrath, a former re- Marine fighter pilot. They have together raised more than thirteen point five million dollars between them, most of it by the challenger. And that's going to be kind of an early bellwether, one of the you know so-called canary in the coal mines to see how maybe the rest of the night is going. And at 7 p.m. Eastern time, there are a lot of states that close their polls. I'm looking at Virginia where there are four competitive races where Republicans are the defending party, including one in Northern Virginia near Washington, and also a couple of races in Georgia and one in South Carolina. And most of the polls close in Florida where there are a number of competitive races worth watching. I think those states are among the earliest that are going to report, I'm gonna be looking for Very closely at those results just for signs of how the rest of the evening might go.
0: As Greg said, there's a pretty wide range of forecasted gains for the Democrats. They need 23 seats to take the majority. Some predictions have them close to that line. Others have them gaining 40, 50, maybe even more. Lauren, what are the operational differences between holding a bare majority or a wider margin?
3: Well, you always want as many people on your team as possible when you're running the House. If you think back to when the Democrats had control for the four years they did under the last years of George W. Bush and then the first years of President Obama, it was hard to get some of the big ticket items through something like... Obamacare, without a lot of arm twisting and making deals, you could lose some votes, but you had to hold on to enough to get your legislation through. The narrower that margin, the harder it gets, especially if in this case, let's say the Democrats have a very narrow majority. The Republicans are a unified minority in that chamber and, and hold tight. It's going to make it very difficult for leaders there to push their bills over the line.
1: As we'll get into in the next segment, the most likely outcome from the polling looks like a divided Congress. So if Democrats do retake the House while Republicans hold the Senate, broadly speaking, what should we expect to change from the status quo under a unified Republican government that we currently have?
3: Well, two big things. The first is on the committee level, Democrats will have the gavels and they will set the agendas and get to decide what they want to hold in terms of oversight hearings, who they want to bring up as witnesses, what documents they want to subpoena including even, say, the president's tax return. So having control at the committee level means that the White House is going to face more oversight or more aggressive oversight, perhaps, than they have in the last two years. In terms of the floor agenda, Democrats will be deciding what bills to bring up and what bills to keep off the floor. We know Nancy Pelosi has said that she wants to move campaign finance legislation, legislation dealing with LGBTQ equality. That's something that we haven't seen move in Republican rule. Climate change will come back to the fore as an issue on the House side if the Democrats take over. So there will be a change in the sort of bills we see moving, although some of the realities of governing mean that they'll still have to deal with spending and they'll still have to work with Republicans to get that through.
1: And most of those bills will likely face resistance if there's still a Republican-controlled Senate and, of course, President Trump in the White House.
3: Absolutely. And of course, the Republicans, even if they're in the minority in the Senate, will still have the filibuster rules and the need to get to 60 votes to cut off debate to kind of act as a check against the Democrats, even if they were to lose the majority in both chambers. Down the stretch, campaigns have been making
0: their closing arguments, Democrats focusing a lot on health care, while the president and Republicans turn to immigration and highlighting the so-called caravan of asylum seekers making their way through Mexico from Central America. The president's even sent troops to the southern border. The same time, we've seen political violence in the form of attempted bombings, targeting TV pundits, Democratic figures, and of course, the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh and a couple other shootings around the country. Greg, how are these current events shaping the final days of the campaign?
2: Well, I think President Trump's focus on- on immigration and the caravan suggests to me that he thinks that those are motivating issues for his political base. I mean, he said that he thinks he can talk to the red states, the Republican states, and not to the blue states, the Democratic states. Midterm elections are often described as so-called base elections. They have a lower voter turnout than presidential election years, and the people who kind of turn out for midterm elections tend to be more active voters. And Democrats are already enthused by their opposition to President Trump. Democratic voters for a long time have registered higher levels of voter enthusiasm to go to the polls than Republicans. And I think Trump and his focus on immigration in the caravan point out that, or at least underscore, that he's trying to gin up his base to match the Democratic enthusiasm. I think some Republicans would like him to talk more about the economy. I'm not sure the focus on illegal immigration in the caravan is necessarily helping Republicans in a lot of upper-income, well-educated districts that are going to help determine the majority. It may be more helpful in the Senate, which has a much different uh, a much different political map. But it just points to me that President Trump thinks that this is kind of a motivating issue for the voters he thinks he needs to preserve the Republican majority.
1: Some Democrats challenging incumbents in districts Trump won have said they won't back Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi for Speaker should the Democrats take the majority. Lauren, could Pelosi face a real challenge there?
3: It's still possible. It would be a little unusual for a party to win control and then throw out the leaders that got them there. But as you note, some people on the campaign trail hedged a little bit or said that they wouldn't support her when the vote comes uh, once the Congress sits down to organize itself. It's important to remember with Speaker that there's two votes. There's the one inside the party caucus, which is just Democrats sitting down and deciding who to nominate for speaker. And then there's the one on the floor that would happen the first day of the new Congress. And that first vote is behind closed doors. That's behind closed doors, right? You don't have to necessarily declare who you are. Um, The one that's on the House floor, it's visual, there's cameras and every vote is counted. So you could see people behaving differently in the closed door election than they do in the public vote that'll happen early next year. So the other challenge there is there's no heir apparent. There's no person who can necessarily challenge her and take over. The most likely candidate was seen for a long time to be Joe Crowley, and he was knocked out in the primary by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's one of the members we expect to be there next year. So we'll have to see how that plays out.
0: There's potentially another challenge to Democratic leadership from within the party. The Congressional Black Caucus is pushing for one of their members to be in the top two. What have you heard about that?
3: There was a letter that came out to that effect saying that one of the top two positions should be a CBC member. Right now, the top three leaders are Nancy Pelosi, followed by Denny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn. Jim Clyburn is a longtime member of the CBC. If the people move up, then Nancy Pelosi becomes Speaker. It's not clear to me if number two in the Democratic Party would be that number three slot majority whip in this case, but um, we'll have to see how deep that line gets drawn in the sand when the votes actually come. If Clyburn remains in leadership and that satisfies their requests, then that might be the end of that.
1: What are the dynamics on the Republican side in the race to replace outgoing Speaker Paul Ryan?
3: So first is that Kevin McCarthy is viewed this time as the heir apparent. He was number two, though, in 2015 when John Boehner resigned in the middle of the Congress and didn't have enough support, which got Paul Ryan involved. And that's how Paul Ryan became speaker in McCarthy State number two. This time around, the most likely person to come up and challenge him would be Steve Scalise, who is right now the Republican whip number three. But the real question here is this challenge on the right from Jim Jordan, who's a House Freedom Caucus co-founder, pretty conservative guy, has the backing of a lot of the groups in town that agitate Club for Growth and Heritage Action, others like that, who want to see him make a run for speaker from a more right-wing position. If he has enough support to undermine Kevin McCarthy, that could blow this open, give Scalise a way in. And that's one of the dynamics we'll be watching really closely.
0: All right. Thank you both. We will be back in just a moment to talk about the United States Senate.
1: Despite the fact that they're happening at the same time with the same underlying factors, the races to control the House and Senate seem likely to play out very differently. Lauren Duggan and Greg Giroux remain with us to talk about what's going on in the upper chamber of Congress.
0: Unlike in the House, where most polling and forecasts have Democrats making significant gains, even taking the majority, Republicans appear poised to keep control of the Senate, potentially even picking up seats. Greg, why the difference in outlooks?
2: It does seem like I'm covering two different elections with the House and the Senate. And the reason why Democrats are its going to be much harder for them to achieve a majority in the Senate is because they face one of the most forbidding Senate election maps in history of the 35 Senate elections that are at stake on Tuesday the Democrats of the defending party in 26 of them, and the Republicans in just nine of those races. I haven't seen a ratio like that since before World War II. And of those 26 states where the Democrats are the defending party, 10 of them were won by President Trump in the 2016 election, including five of them where the president won by more than 18 percentage points. So it's a very difficult map, one under which Democrats could not be uh, really expecting to make many gains or certainly not overturn the 51 to 49 Republican majority. But it would be a success for them if they kind of held their own or maybe even lost just one seat because this is such a favorable Republican map.
1: There are quite a few competitive races this year, as you mentioned. What are the most pivotal ones you'll be watching Tuesday night?
2: Well, I'll, I'll mention those big five, the so called big five uh, of Democrats who are defending seats in those states that Trump won overwhelmingly. And those are West Virginia, North Dakota, Montana, Indiana, and Missouri. And of those five states, Indiana reports its votes the earliest. Most polls close in Indiana at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, the bulk of the state at 7. In that state, Joe Donnelly has a very tough race against uh, Mike Braun, a wealthy businessman and former state legislator, a uh, state that Donnelly won in 2012 over flawed Republican opposition. It'll be interesting to see if he can win enough independence and Republican votes to hang on. So I'll be looking at that one kind of early in the evening. And then I think the Democrats, I uh, want to look at Florida, where most polls close at 7 p.m. Eastern time to see if Democratic incumbent Bill Nelson hangs on against the big spending challenge from outgoing Republican Governor Rick Scott. And I think the other race the Democrats have to keep an Eye on and are a little bit more worried about than they should be is in New Jersey, where Bob Menendez has had some ethics baggage and that's been hampering him in a state that's strongly Democratic. Uh, Like Bill Nelson, Menendez also has a big spending Republican challenger, Bob Hugan, who used to lead a a pharmaceutical company and has spent more than $36 million of his own race on the New Jersey contest. And then among Senate seats that Republicans are are the defending party, you have Arizona, Nevada, which um, have been very, very close for basically the whole year. And then you have have two more Republican-leaning states, Tennessee and Texas, where um, you'd expect the Republicans to win comfortably just because of the political orientation of those states, but the Democratic candidates there have kept the races very close. So I'd say there are about, you know, 10 to 12 Senate races I'll be watching Election Day.
1: I'm curious your thoughts when we talk about polling predictions and how reliable the conventional wisdom is uh, in both the House and Senate in terms of you know which party will make the most gains. Considering a lot of people were surprised in 2016 when President Trump won. So you know what are what are your thoughts on on the polling predictions?
2: Well, polls are helpful. They're a nice snapshot, although it is, you're just taking a sample of the electorates. It's just impossible to kind of survey everyone, so you have to rely on these very small samples. It's becoming very hard. It's becoming much harder to poll people because a lot of people just aren't picking up their phones. It's expensive to do a poll well because you have you have to have live interviewers, and you want to ha- call as many people as you can to get a representative sample of the electorate. And the other trick, especially for a midterm election like this, is that you trying to figure out what the composition of the electorate's going to be. You know, what percentage of the you know 18 to 29 year olds are actually going to vote? So that's very hard because you need to kind of model the electorate correctly to get the accurate result. And as far as 2016, I think the national polls were actually pretty close. The problem with the polling in 2016 was that it wasn't done frequently enough or as well enough in some in just a handful of states. One should treat polls with some skepticism. You know, know that there's a margin of error, that this is just a small sample of the electorate, but it is a decent snapshot of uh, the best we have in, in the uh, in the absence of actual hard vote returns.
0: In 2016, we saw that the polling errors were kind of all in one direction and Trump ultimately prevailed there. If they're off in the other direction this year, Lauren, Democrats could potentially take the majority in both chambers. We talked about what divided government or a divided Congress might look like in the last segment. What happens if Democrats do take both chambers this year? We'll take
3: what I said earlier about gavels and oversight and multiply it by two, right? Because Mm -hmm. we'll have the House and Senate committees both calling for people to come up and answer questions. The other thing they can do that will have a big effect change from these last two years is on the nomination front. Because of the rules change, it only takes 50 votes right now for the Republicans to cut off debate and push forward Donald Trump's cabinet and Supreme Court picks, for example, and lower court picks. We could see a change dynamic there. Let's say another Supreme Court opening happens in the next two years. If the Democrats have control of the Senate, that will give them a much bigger hand there in trying to shape who the president picks and what happens there. Or if perhaps they don't consider it or or keep bargaining with them until there's a nominee that's more acceptable to them. That'll also play out at the lower court level and then in the cabinet where they'll have more sway there. In terms of the issues, you could use things like the fast-track reconciliation process to send President Trump a bill that reflects Democratic priorities on things like health care, taxes, other fiscal and budgetary issues, and kind of draw starker lines going into the 2020 presidential election than you might if only one chamber is in Democratic hands.
1: And under the scenario where you know we may see a Democratic House and a Republican Senate, do you see any areas where they could come together and send something that the president might sign?
3: Well, they'll have to try to work together on the budget. We've seen over the last couple of years the permutations between Republicans and Democrats on the White House and Capitol Hill, an ability to come up with overall funding levels and then get some of the appropriations bills passed and sent. The dividing line here may still be border wall funding, which is going to be an issue in the next several weeks as we approach the lame duck. But there's There's issues like infrastructure, where you could see some ground being made between the two parties. There have been some instances this year, like the water resources bill or the FAA bill, where there was bipartisan support. I think in the healthcare space, another round of opioid legislation, drug pricing, those are areas where we could see some consensus. And then prison reform is something that's been talked about for the lame duck, could go into next year, where there's this interesting coalition of people who want to see something done. It's a priority of Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump in the White House, and a lot of folks on Capitol Hill. So we make a lot and we spend a lot of time talking about where divisions are, but even in this current Congress, we've seen a lot of bipartisanship on some issues.
1: And I think it's an important point. A lot of people focus sometimes on these marquee issues, health care, taxes. But there's also, as you mentioned, the annual just running of the government uh, responsibility of funding defense authorization and things like that.
3: Absolutely. These things that have to get done every year and tend to get done. You do have to have bipartisanship, otherwise the whole place grinds to a halt. So we'll see where this one leads. Greg Giroux is an elections reporter with
0: Bloomberg Government, where Lauren Duggan is the deputy news director. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg TV's election night coverage to see more of Greg. Thank you both for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Find out more about the topics we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg Government at about.bgov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at bgov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Daniel Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Schenk. Nico Anzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information can be found at premiumbeat.com.